0: Welcome back to Empowering Exceptional, the VE Plus podcast series, where we focus on fascinating people doing innovative things in their fields. I'm your host and head of Vincent and Elkins Labor and Employment Practice, Sean Becker. We're joined today by Manoj Saxena. Manoj is interested in all things artificial intelligence. He's a venture capitalist in that space, executive chairman of the AI startup Cognitive Scale, and the founder of a nonprofit called Responsible AI. Manoj is a thought leader in the field, an entrepreneur, and a true innovator. Welcome. Thanks, Sean. Pleasure to be here. We're also joined today by Paul Tobias, a partner in the mergers and acquisitions and capital markets practice at v e working in our Austin office. Paul's
1: first client in Austin was Manoj Saxena. Paul, tell us how you two met. Thanks, Sean. Manoj, it's tough to believe, but it's been 20 years plus since we met, okay. and you had just started ExtraPrize, and you were looking to raise money from an investor, Shelby Carter. Mm-hmm. There was an important moment for you to raise money because you had run up $200,000 of credit on your 13 credit cards. What were you thinking? <laughs> <laughs> Clearly not right.
2: <laughs> but, uh, no, it's, it's incredible to think it's 20 years. But, um, you know, just a quick recap. I had moved to Austin from uh, 3M in Minnesota. I'd gone to business school. got hired by 3M. After freezing my behind for 15 or 18 months in 3M, I decided I gotta look for something more warm. So I moved down to Austin with 3M. And uh, in 1996, I came across this thing called Mosaic, the browser. And um, it was one of those life changing moments for me when I realized. Uh, what it meant in terms of accessing and distributing information. Uh, so I started getting this uh, passion of uh, trying to find and build a business. Because the one thing I learned at 3M was the art of innovation. In the in the seven years I was there, I had multiple promotions, but one of the things I really admired was how do you convert ideas into products into profits. And uh, the browser, even though I didn't have much of a software background, Uh, I realized instinctively that that's going to be civilization changing, you know, not just market changing. So I had this obsession about trying to put that to work in uh, transforming how businesses connect with each other. But I had no background in that area. I didn't have any money. I didn't have no credibility. But at that time, you know, um, I decided the one way to do that was I needed strong technical people. And they wouldn't come to me if I told them work for Peanuts. So I took uh, 13 credit cards and over $200,000 of credit on it, although I didn't end up using all of them. I only used about half of it <laughs> before I realized I should get some investors in here to start sharing the risk. And uh, when I was doing that, uh, one of the best pieces of advice I got when I was leaving 3M was to make sure that I got the best lawyer and the best accountant I could. And uh, when I started asking around town who was the best lawyer, you know, Paul's came up, uh, name came up in multiple sources. So That's how we got connected. And we haven't looked back. I mean, I always say that I will never do
1: a startup or a venture fund without Paul Tobias by my side. Yeah, I say the same thing, (laughs) Manish. Thank you. When you started Xterprise, it was a good time to start a company. Um, But by the time you were uh, in the mode to sell Xterprise, the market had changed. Oh, yeah. And you sold that to Commerce One and a, a very fine exit in particular at that time. And then you decided to do another startup. What was driving you to do your next startup?
2: Yeah, so a couple of things. You know, we got lucky. A lot of times you want to think you're good, but, you know, effort helps, talent helps, but luck and timing also has a lot to do with it. So when we got acquired by Commerce One, I spent about a year there to make sure a couple of things happened, make sure that my team was taken care of in terms of getting integrated properly and uh, you know, got good career paths, and also to make sure that the technology was being, you know, put to use in the right way. But the markets in 2001 started really sort of going down south fast, and they wanted me to come and move to California and be the president of Commerce One. And uh, I just couldn't find it in myself to leave Austin and go to California. So after about a year, I um, decided to leave and build Webify, which was the second company, So it was about a year's gap where I was working as a big company exec and then started Webify. Which, again, Paul Paul was the first
1: one I called saying, let's incorporate this company. So that was another fun ride together, Manoj. And in 2006, you decided it was time to sell the company again. And this time you sold Webify to IBM and ended up ultimately becoming the first general manager of IBM Watson. What did you do with IBM Watson, and and how did you um, approach that incredible opportunity? Yeah, again, you know, IBM was a phenomenal validation
2: of the work that the team had done and the product and technology that we had built. And I was there for about three years when uh, the Jeopardy game was played, and IBM decided, the board decided to make a commercial business unit out of it. And given that I was a guy who had built and sold a couple of companies, they asked me to lead that business. So I literally started with a department code and a budget of uh, tens of millions of dollars. So when I got going, I had to sort of frame the problem and solve for four things. Number one, I had to figure out what exactly is this technology and what does it do? It's one thing to play Jeopardy and beat the Jeopardy champions. It's another thing to build a commercial application that people will pay tens of millions of dollars for. So one, I had to understand what it was. Second, I had to put a team of people around me who... Uh, could believe that this could be put to work in a commercial way for the good of humanity and good of IBM. So I had to go recruit other people. There is a old African saying that says, if you want to go fast, you go alone. If you want to go far, you go with a group. And uh, I knew that I had to get the right group around me. The people part of this is the most important part. People think it's about technology, but it's actually about people. It's a human enterprise. So that was the second part I had to do. The third thing I had to do was go find the markets and applications uh, to apply this incredibly powerful technology, which we all knew that uh, was going to change not just IBM, but change the entire industry along the lines of what IBM Mainframe had done for the company. So I had to be very thoughtful about where we put this to work, because history will judge us. Like uh, the Mainframe, for example, IBM very thoughtfully chose to apply the first application of it for census. It was something for the good, good of the humanity and good of the social cause. So, I decided, and we decided to put IBM Watson to work for cancer and, and medical care. So that was the third, uh, third piece we had to do. And fourth was we had to get a customer who would then uh, sign up to uh, be a pioneer with us. You know, um, they say that the way to identify a pioneer is someone with the most arrows in his back or her back. <laughs> so you had to find someone who was willing to be sort of take those arrows in their back. And uh, we got some good customers. And I stayed with IBM Watson for about three years, grew it into a few hundred million dollars in revenues. And then I decided to move on from, becoming a, from changing from being a player to being a coach and to invest in other people's potential. So that was sort of the last phase. And again, Paul was right through helping me negotiate my employment agreements going in and employment agreements coming out of IBM, for which I'm very thankful
0: Manoj, I've heard you talk about your experience with Watson, and you analogized it to uh, an industry that people were dying of thirst in an ocean of salt water. Yeah. There was information all around, but you didn't know what questions to ask. Mm -hmm. So tell us how you went about applying this incredibly powerful tool with Watson to the healthcare industry.
2: Um, What occurred to me was what we were talking about is a whole new class of tools that humanity has invented. And this class of tools um, will go down as the most significant because everything before Watson, whatever humankind had invented, amplified our arms or our legs, but nothing ever came to the power of our brain. Watson represented a class of technologies called artificial intelligence. Now Google and Facebook and everyone else is doing it now. That was the first set of tools that were able to amplify our brains, They were are able to amplify the processing power of what human mind does, our human brain does. Because before, um, and even now, most of the times, a computer is nothing but a giant calculator. All it can do is, can do math, and some it can do a little bit of understanding of, you know, uh, numbers and text. But without that, we, you know, it can't process an image. I can't point my camera to the chandelier and say, who's the designer of it, and where can I buy it? Because an image is a non-computable object. So, uh, Watson and that technologies represented um, uh, uh, three sets of capabilities. I call it sense, in- sense, infer, and act. It was the ability of computers to first sense all available information, not just numbers and data. So a, co- a computer could sense what an image went, uh, meant. A computer could uh, sense what a document, like a, a, a dissertation or a medical journal uh, meant. A computer could understand audio conversations. So that was the first part, that uh, sensing was a new capability that computers had that didn't exist before. Second was it could then infer and start tapping you on the shoulder and saying, this is something I found of interest for you. You know, you may want to look into it. So, so far, um, and this is something I did after I left Watson, was almost flip Watson on its head. Because in Watson, it was a question and answer system. I had to ask a question and I got an answer back. What if I didn't know the question to ask? It was something actually a 10-year-old asked me in a class, and she said, excuse me, sir, can Watson tell me what question to ask? So I think there is that other genius of how do you use computers to augment our capabilities? And third was how does it learn? Once I make a decision, uh, does it learn? So a good example of this is Spotify. Right? If I'm listening to my music, if I give it a thumbs up, it starts creating new playlists for me based on my preferences and based on similar artists like that. Um, So I think that was the genius of what Watson was. It represented a generation one of a whole new class of computing system that could process all kinds of information and and help you make better decisions. Healthcare happened to be an area where there were 8 million pages of research being published every year on different types of cancers. And an average doctor was spending less than five hours a month reading up medical journals. So clearly their ability to do diagnosis could have been augmented quite well if they had a tool like Watson that can help you guide through your diagnosis. So that's sort of the, the journey. First, understanding what is it that this new class of systems are representing. Second is then applying it
0: in a deep domain to drive uh, outcomes. So your current company Cognitive Scale that's concerned with AI being augmented intelligence as opposed to artificial intelligence. Yeah, that's right. So you know one thing is if you look at
2: artificial intelligence let's sort of uh, there's so much myth and, and and frankly there's so much hype about AI today. The way to understand AI is not just as a set of technologies, but a set of capabilities. So on one hand, you have artificial intelligence as a collection of technologies. Natural language processing, computer vision, sound processing, deep learning. All of these are components of a broad category of technology called AI. Then there is the application of AI, which is building intelligent systems that process all available information and help you make better decisions, and they get smarter with time. So everything we have built in IT so far have been rules-based systems. The problem with rules-based systems is rules don't learn. An AI system is a pattern-based system. It learns to connect the dots, and it gets smarter with time. So while a traditional system loses value with time, an, uh, an AI system gains value with time. And when you zoom back out and look at AI, there are three types of AI systems, broadly speaking. One is AI that could be used to automate a task, and a human being. So anything that a human brain can do in two seconds or less today can be done by a machine in a much better and a cheaper way. So one is automation. And on the other end of it is autonomous systems, things like self-driving cars, where you remove the human out of the loop and you completely have a self-driving system. I think both of these represent outlier cases. There's only about 10% of work that is um, you know, So things like robotic process automation that can automate that work. And I think uh, autonomous systems, there are very few systems that are truly autonomous. The bulk of the opportunity is the middle, which is augmentation, which is how do you pair humans and machines together so they can make better decisions and they can make. So to break out AI, it is automated decisions, augmented decisions, and autonomous decisions. And we felt Uh, In the early days of cognitive scale, we used to say that cognitive scale is going to build the operating system for every person's Iron Man Jarvis suit, You know, so that every human being will have a computer that's tapping you on the shoulder. Every lawyer has um, the power of 10,000 best legal scholars behind saying, when you're preparing for that case, I've gone through all the case laws, gone through the jury's profile, here are four arguments I suggest you should make to have a better day at the court today. So that's the type of stuff that uh, we, we, I really think is where the power
0: is, is the ability to augment human decision-making. It's one thing to have an idea. It's another thing to take that idea and execute on it successfully. Mm-hmm. You've done that repeatedly. So wh- what's your secret? How do you take your visions and turn that into tangible success?
2: I think it's a combination of things. I think one of them I give a TED Talk on is about this notion of courage to fail. Uh, so I would break it out into three or four things. Number one is you got to have the courage to fail. One of the beautiful things about America, you know, I grew up in India, and uh, in this society. No one cares if you fail. You pick yourself up and you go back again. That's the pioneer spirit and the pioneer mentality. In India, if I failed, oh, my God. I mean, that's like a black name on my family. And people will say, your son didn't really, you know, cut, you know, not cut out. So this whole entrepreneurial piece is something I learned at uh, 3M, the whole spirit of pioneering, spirit of getting back on your feet and trying. So this notion of, you know, everyone has the desire to succeed, but very few people have the courage to fail. So I think building the resilience inside and saying it's okay to fail, right? That's one. Number two is the ability to look around the corner, right? Uh, I have never been the smartest guy. I've never been. I work hard, but there are many other people who work harder than me. Uh, But the gifts that I have uh, are two gifts. One is I can look around the corner sooner than most people do. And second is I have the ability to identify and inspire and engage
1: the best and the brightest around this crazy thing I see coming around the corner. So, Manoj, looking back at your failures and, and your successes, what advice do you have for entrepreneurs who are starting companies today?
2: A few things. Number one is there has never been a better time to be an entrepreneur than now. We are living in this time... Of a digital renaissance, you know what Italy went through back with the renaissance. I think ten years from now we're going to look back and realize that what we're going through right now is going to make the internet look small. There is this Cambrian explosion of technologies that's that's happening right now. You know, for a thousand dollars a month, uh, you last year you could get the power of an insect's brain in the cloud. Uh, this year, for thousand dollars a month, you can get the power of a mouse's brain in the cloud. And twelve years from now, you can get the pr- power of a human brain in the cloud for $1,000 a year. So when you have a, a digital canvas like that, there is a tremendous amount of creative things you can build on top of it. So, and new business models that can come up. So it's gonna make the last set of companies look small, you know, what, what has been built. So the second part is really understand yourself. Understand what your life plans are before you put your business plan in place. Many people, when they come to me and they say, we wanna start a company, and I ask them why, and any one of them that says I want to make a lot of money, and I tell them go take a cold shower, and don't come back and talk to me till there is this deep, burning desire saying I want to change the world, uh, because there are easier ways to make money, and and true entrepreneurs are obsessed about really sort of changing the world. Third is uh, teams. You know, uh, you are only as good as the people that you hire. So find people who have complementary skills than you do. And definitely don't have friends to get into a business with. Beer buddies make the worst business partners. And if you want to destroy a relationship, absolutely go into business with someone. Uh, A lot of people come to me and say, you know, she's my best friend and we have known each other for so many years. I'm like, not going to make it, right? Unless the skills are complementary. And then last but not the least, surround yourself with good advice. I think it's incredibly important to get coaches, Um, everyone from – people who have done companies before, to people like Paul Tobias in the law side, to people on the accounting side. I think it's critical to build an advisory group who can you know, steer you through a lot of ditches that you will get into, and,
0: and believe me, everyone gets into a ditch. Well, startups are synonymous with innovation, and entrepreneurs starting up, they might have the ideas, they might have the passion, they may even have some good advisors, but how did you overcome the challenge of having limited resources at the early stages?
2: Yeah, you know, it it, it takes three things to build companies. Um, People, ideas, and capital. Of all of this, capital is the easiest to get. And it sounds very non-intuitive to people who are starting off their companies. The hardest thing to get is people. Um, The second hardest thing to get is an idea that the time has come. And then the last one is money. And people over-index on money in the early days because... Here's the reason, if you are building a business around an idea or a concept for which there is no market need, no amount of money that you put into it, no amount of geniuses you put into it is going to change the outcome. So I think, um, you know, it's starting with the first things first, which is really understanding and validating um, the opportunity for the market. Is the market real? I have these three questions. Is it real? Can you win? And is it worth it? So, how do you know that the market and opportunity is real? Can you win at it? You know, is it going to be something that you have the skills for or, or unique capabilities for, and is it worth it? Is it going to be built using enough? This is one of the reasons I didn't get into bioinformatics. It's a massive market, but the amount of capital is going to take and it's ten years, and I don't know whether it'll come out positive, or not at the other end. So, everyone has to go through and understand uh, those three questions. You know but in the right sequence. Get the people figured out first, then the idea. Because even, I mean, I'll, the other thing I'll guarantee is this. No matter what you start with, 90% of the startups change course. The idea that you start with, 18 months down the line, there's a 90% of better chance will be something else. Because the market would have guided you towards that. And if you don't have the right people with you, you will not be guided towards the right answer. So I think that sequence of people, ideas, and capital, rather than capital ideas and people uh, is what I think good entrepreneurs need to understand.
1: Munoz, you're one of the few people who's had uh, multiple entrepreneurial successes, companies you've started, and you've also served as an executive of one of the largest companies in the world. Innovation is very difficult at large companies, it seems. What, what advice do you have for the large enterprise on how the, the enterprise can better invest in innovation?
2: Yeah, no, great question. In fact, it's an area where I've been spending a lot of time, with a lot of boards and uh, com- CEOs today. I think there are two parts to it. One is that the traditional model of innovation a- is going to be changed forever. Um, and traditionally, the model was that I have size, I have customer access, and all the good ideas are going to come from me. I think that model is shifting very quickly towards the role of big companies, IT departments from building IT systems to building IT ecosystems. Because not all the smart people are going to be within these companies because the complexity of skills that you need across cloud and big data and mobile and social and design is just not possible for large companies, even a company like IBM, to be able to get all the ideas from inside. That's why corporate venturing, I think, is going to get more and more relevant and important going forward because companies have access to customers and brands that every startup has, uh, needs. And startups have innovation and speed, which every big company needs. So it's a synergistic thing. That's one. The second part is being customer-focused, really understanding where is it that the market is guiding you. And there's no guarantee that the business you are in today is going to be there five years from now. And I think having a sense of... Um, call it humility, as well as disrupting yourself uh, by understanding the market. In many cases, it might require putting a, a 22-year-old to drive an important business function that you may not have ever thought of. So, you know, I think so. We got to have a combination of excitement and humility on how we innovate, both innovate inside and outside, and innovate
1: by engaging different groups of people. Artificial intelligence uh, represents a tremendous opportunity, but. There are many who fear the unintended consequences of artificial intelligence. You have a passion, uh, uh, I I know, about making sure the use of artificial intelligence and augmented intelligence happens responsibly. Can you tell us about that? Yeah, you know, this is an area that
2: um, really has grown and bothered me a lot. I tell my daughters that, you know, I want to eat well and sleep well. And uh, of late, I've been eating well, but I've not been sleeping well uh, because of what I see coming with AI. The CEO of Google said that AI is going to be as transformational to humanity as fire and electricity was. And I think he's not very far off the mark. Uh, This is a civilization-changing technology. And this is also a technology that has great power to do good and tremendous power to do harm. This is going to be like nuclear power times a million in terms of the bit advantages that you can drive and the disruption and, and dislocation that it can create for us as a society. So what's critical is for businesses and regulators and policymakers to really start understanding what is this technology, how is it being put to use, how can it be put to use for destructive purposes. So um, there are two parts to what I'm doing in terms of my work. So my family foundation... We are focused on this nonprofit called Responsible.AI, which is how do you help governments and businesses understand and adopt AI by balancing innovation with regulation, right? So unlike with nuclear power, where the barrier to entry was very high, with AI in two or three years, you could have a kid from any part of the world come in and mess up a big part of our infrastructure and economy. And there are people who are building autonomous drones for warfare. Uh, there are people who are building AI that detects mine and blows up and up, a, a soldier walks over it. There are all kinds of crazy stuff that's going on. So I think um, there is a tremendous need here for governments to really get ahead of this and start figuring out what kinds of rules of engagement. When the nuclear weapons were invented, we had big conventions like the Geneva Convention, or, or, or the name I think was that, where the countries agreed how to put this to work something similar has to happen with AI. The second more pragmatic part of responsible AI is businesses and consumers understanding how this is going to be put to use. You know, um, there's a soap dispenser that uses an AI to dispense soap, and people found out that it only dispenses to white hands, it doesn't dispense soap to black hands. And when they found out what it was, they realized that the AI was fed images of light-skinned hands, and it saw that as a hand, so when a person of darker skin put the thing in it, it, now people were using the same technology considering and putting it into a heart rate monitor so they can detect a cardiac event. So imagine if you are a product manufacturer, you take that and someone has darker skin and they have a cardiac event, and not only impacts their life, but also other legal consequences for you. There are things like that that, I mean I have dozens of examples of AI going rogue because it was not designed properly. So businesses have to start, I mean, what Facebook went through with Cambridge Analytica, um, what we are seeing today in the world, uh, this this politics that we went through today. Social media has been weaponized with AI, because what AI can do now is understand you at an individual level, and, and you at an individual level, at a granularity far bigger than what we ever had, because every like, every picture you post, every person you comment on is building a profile of you in a way that can then be manipulated. The human beings can be hacked with AI. That's what the last political campaign was. It hacked human, be- human brains. And it basically polarized us as a society. If you look at what happened not just in the US, but in Burma and in the Middle East and all, AI was used to hack the human software. And uh, if you don't have proper regulations around it, you could have flash mobs, you could have fake news, you could have things that are way more destructive coming into us in the next, you know, five to 20 years, that as we, as a society and as a business, if we don't start getting ahead of it, I think it's uh, it's going to create a tremendous amount of disruption and chaos. So my, you know, the rest of my life, I'm going to dedicate around um, educating uh, governments and businesses around responsible use of AI. I'm starting that with teaching a course in UT Austin next spring on designing AI systems. So that's going to be my uh, first step into the realm of moving from a player to a
0: coach uh, to now an educator. So that will be the final phase of my life. That's fascinating. And you've clearly got a lot on your plate, a lot of your mind. So do you do anything to take a break from it all?
2: <laughs> I, I bet I know what he's going to say. Yeah, yeah Paul, Paul knows this is a lot of people get uh, um, kind of uh, concerns about it. But um, I love racing cars. You know, uh, Racing cars is the only time where I can shut my brain down because it forces you to be one with the car. And if you think anything else outside of the car, bad things happen. And my daughter likes to say that, I I have like a million tabs open in my brain. So, and I think that's not very far off the thing. I do have a lot of tabs, like a browser tabs open in my brain. And uh, when I'm racing, it forces you to shut down all those tabs and focus on, so I do long distance racing. I have um, uh, an 84 year old car from uh, 1934 uh, only 22 of those left that I just drove across Africa in that. Uh, I did Singapore to Burma a couple of years ago. And my next big one is going to be around the world in 80 days. So uh, the racing to me is like meditation in motion. You know, racing is where my brain gets calm and I kind of disconnect with the world. And it's a great way to see the world and meet some cool and crazy people, you know, who like doing similar things. So that's kind of my, um, my, my p- passion and my outlet. And
0: I love, you know, mechanical watches and stuff, but that's pretty much it. Well, we're grateful to you for spending your time today, and thank you for joining us and sharing your incredible insights. My pleasure.
1: Manoj. you, you uh, talked about going from player to coach to educator, and I really enjoyed uh, each phase of that for you. You've always been an educator to me. I've learned so much from you, observing the way you uh, carry your yourself the way you run companies and the way, the integrity that you have as an individual. And I really appreciate you taking the time to share your insights with us today.
2: Thank you, Paul. It means a lot coming from you. And I wish my mom was alive to hear that, but thank you. It means a lot.
0: Thank you for joining us for another empowering, exceptional podcast. I'm Sean Becker. Please join us again next time for another episode.